Totally Football Show, totally full of transfer tittle-tattle, some genuine, some made up. Kieran Trippier to Atletico is in the legit section, honestly. As for Unai Emery's claim that Arsenal are looking to sign very big, very expensive players, well, we just have to wait and see what Kroenke and Sons penny-pinching co have to say about that. Elsewhere, Ravel Morrison is back in England, Matthias is in Turin to the delict of Juve supporters, and Joey Barton is in trouble with the law to the surprise of nobody. All that, plus we look ahead to the AFCON final and talk mic'd up Eddie Howe. See? Loads of content. I'm Matt Davis-Adams filling in for AC Jimbo, who, fear not, will be back soon enough. Who am I in the company of today, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. First up, it's writer, broadcaster and long-suffering, brackets, a couple of years tops, Manchester United supporter, Carl Anker. Hello, Carl. Hey, mate. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And alongside Carl, Michael Cox, author of Zonal Marking, his latest book available now is really good. I've just reached part three, foot, 2000 to 2004. Um, how's pre-season treating you, Michael? Yeah, it's been all right. Thanks for reading. I think you're coming up to my least favourite section of the book. <laughs> okay, great. But, it, but it's the shortest. I was clever enough to uh, trim it down. All right, I look forward to that. Uh, so Huddersfield's become the home of Paddy Power-sponsored Hindus. Uh, my favourite line from the kit press release, the elasticated waistband gives support and security for the whole 90 minutes. The team wore the kit for Wednesday night's friendly against Rochdale. The FA have concerns. Mm. Let's talk about some actual football stuff, eh? We mentioned this on Monday before it was confirmed. Now it has been. We ought to have a quick word on Steve Bruce, officially Newcastle United's new head coach, having put pen to paper on a three-year deal to replace Rafael Benitez. Chaps, I'm keen for your hot takes in addition to what was discussed on Monday. Carl, if Steve Bruce is the answer, what is the question? How much more can you punish a fan base? <laughs> I think that's probably, probably spot on. Michael, in terms of tactically, what could Newcastle supporters expect from Bruce? Is there a kind of classic Steve Bruce team? I mean, he's been fairly flexible over the years. When he was with Hull, he played a three-man defence at a time when not many teams were. But I don't think he's he's not wedded to one system or one style of play. To be honest, I think with that Newcastle team, when you look at how they kind of prospered last season, I mean that in relation to the quality of their squad, which I think was probably championship level, they were very defensive and very deep and very organised. And I think Bruce will have to continue with that. I mean, the thing I'm fascinated about Steve Bruce is that he's managed Sheffield United and Sheffield Wednesday, Birmingham and Villa, and now Sunderland and Newcastle. So he really doesn't mind about crossing big rivalries in English football. And you've got to have some kind of respect for that. Yeah, and that is totally a, a quiz question coming to you soon. Uh, midday on Wednesday, hashtag Bruce Out was trending, so that's quite the welcome from the Toonami. The big man himself told the Magpies website, I'm delighted and incredibly proud to be appointed as head coach of Newcastle United. This is <laughs> my boyhood club and it, it was my dad's club, so it's a very special moment for me and my family. <laughs> Uh, for more on this, I caught up with Lee Ryder, Chief Newcastle United writer from the Newcastle Evening Chronicle in Shanghai from the 38th floor of his hotel. Lee, Steve Bruce to Newcastle, what was your immediate reaction to the news? It is underwhelming, but I suppose unless it was going to be Wenger or Mourinho coming in after Rafa Benitez, it was going to be a hard act to follow because Rafa was so popular and, you know, he, we had this thing going called the, the Rafa-lution uh, and so it was always going to be it was always going to be that that tough act to follow, and now Steve Bruce has got firstly to win probably a bit of a PR battle first and foremost. He's got to you know get everybody or try to get everybody back on side. Won't be an easy task, and from his point of view, 
he'll be looking at it thinking it's his dream job, but it's probably in nightmare circumstances. Would the supporters have hated the success of Rafa once they found out it wasn't going to be Mourinho or Wenger, no matter who it was? I think it's so complex, the Newcastle situation, and people look at it and think the fans are angry about sort of like not winning cups or not, not getting into Europe. It, the, the the big issue is that with the supporters that they don't feel that the club is reaching its maximum sort of potential. Um, so Newcastle City, where you're guaranteed 50,000 fans every other week, it's the heartbeat of the city, basically. And the supporters want to see just that little bit more ambition. And they just want to see the team, you know, play... Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, Barcelona-style football, but, you know, they just want to see the team have a go and, and you know, not so much even entertain, just, just you know, have those players on the pitch that are going to be able to, you know, just go for the jugular that a little bit more. Let's go into the mindset of Steve Bruce a little here. He's left a fairly comfortable job at Sheffield Wednesday where he was given time off at the start and headed back to the northeast, where he's already hated by Sunderland fans. Why has he decided to take on Newcastle now? I mean, this is a job that Steve Bruce has always wanted I think he, he wanted it back in 2004 but he couldn't get out with his arrangement with Birmingham you know once he went to Sunderland you kind of thought well that's it he's kind of blotted his copybook as far as the Geordies are concerned but Newcastle have taken a very big gamble almost pushing fans to the limit I mean you've seen the reaction yesterday when Steve Bruce got announced you know fans were absolutely furious uh, they don't think that Steve Bruce is the man um, they say he's not going to get a honeymoon period. Um, I, I said last week that once things settled down, you know, he, he would probably get the fair crack of the whip. And what I meant by that was, I don't think he's going to be getting booed and cheered in the dugout. I don't think anybody is, surely isn't that that unreasonable. But I do think he needs to get results. He's going to have to hit the ground running. And Newcastle got a really tough start. Arsenal in the first game. Uh, then they've got Norwich away and then they've got Spurs away. So they are three tough fixtures. Yeah, you know, Steve Bruce is probably going to have to try and get at least one one win and maybe a draw with them to try and keep people's um, anger at bay. But it, it, it certainly won't be easy. Lee Ryder there, Chief Newcastle United writer from the Newcastle Evening Chronicle. As for the owl's eye view on things, and let's face it, owls get the best view of most things, don't they? Because their heads can turn 360 degrees and they're not very impressed. Club statement time. The club is disappointed to learn via public statement issued by Newcastle United that it has appointed former Sheffield Wednesday staff Steve Bruce, Steve Agnew and Stephen Clements. Regardless of the fact that the staff resigned from their positions within the club on Monday, there remains outstanding legal issues to be resolved between the club and the staff of Newcastle United. The club is currently considering its position and taking the appropriate legal advice. I sort of touched on this briefly on Monday, Carl, but they've got reason to feel pretty cross with Steve Bruce, I think, because he left Villa with his reputation having been damaged somewhat and then they were kind enough to give him that month off before he started the job and basically six months later he said, sorry, I've had a better offer. Yeah, and I think also I've had a better offer to work with Mike Ashley. Really? Come on. Sheffield Wednesday have rightful cause to be aggrieved by the current goings on in uh, in that hiring and it'll be interesting to see what sort of uh, if they do choose to take legal action if, what that shape that'll take 
I think we're all hoping for a Simon Jordan issuing a writ to Ian Dowie in the middle of a <laughs> press conference kind of thing, which I don't know if that's how Sheffield Wednesday roll, but let's keep our fingers crossed. Um, always good to look at some cold, hard numbers on a podcast just to get a feel for a person's real success rate. Steve Bruce, average win percentage, 38.5. Uh, Rafa Benitez in his time at Newcastle, 42.5. So basically, Newcastle, we've saved you a nice spot in the Totally Football League show 2020-21 edition. Uh, elsewhere in managerial news, Joey Barton's been charged with actual bodily harm. This is following his alleged altercation with Barnsley manager Daniel Stendhal after the teams met in a League One game at Oakwell back in April. You might remember Barton emphatically denied the allegations at the time, just like he did the other times he was charged with assault, one of which resulted in him being sent to prison. We've got this documentary coming out on Fleetwood about last season. I think there's going to be a Homer Simpson-style scene-missing bit for the <laughs> away game at Barnsley. Michael, why does football keep giving Joey Barton second chances? Well, because I think at times he's shown himself to be a relatively engaging and and relatively thoughtful guy. I was surprised that he got that job first up, but I think he he has a genuine commitment to to wanting to stay in football and wanting to be a manager. Obviously, it's a shame that he's got himself into this trouble, which isn't a great surprise, but um, I can kind of understand why they took a chance on him. Does it feel like maybe the documentary's gone hand in hand with that and we know the Fleetwood owner is a mate of Joey Barton's but perhaps he saw the potential for commercial tie-ins like this with having such a high profile slash volatile name in charge of what is a relatively low profile League One team? Possibly. One thing that always struck me was the short spell in 2013 where he disappeared for a bit and sort of reinvented himself as Joseph Barton, listener to Morrissey and the Smiths getting appearances on question time i believe and whatnot and there was a very uh interesting pr company that helped him reinvent himself as such the interesting about joe barton is <laughs> even when he's being wrong there's often a seed of something that's quite interesting there and i think that might have helped with his uh, initial hiring and whatnot and he, he was a half decent manager last season but then he goes off and unfortunately can't help himself and gives into some of his baser impulses. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how it unfolds. But if he's found guilty of that, then it's difficult to see a way back from, I would have thought. But that's enough of uh, managerial wonders of the footballing world. We're going to talk about players and their movements next. Hey, listeners, it's me, James Richardson, taking a break from the world's strongest men and model railway enthusiasts to tell you that it's not long now till the new season. And excitingly, we're going to be doing a Totally Football Live in London at the South Bank Centre. It's happening on the evening of Monday, September the 30th, when I'll be joined on stage by mystic of the statistic Duncan Alexander and continental heartthrobs Julian Laurence and James Horncastle, one of whom is actually from Hull. If that sounds like your sort of night out, then head to the southbankcentre.co.uk, search for Totally Football Live, and then click on the nice purpley picture of me. That's Totally Football Live at the South Bank Centre, Monday, September the 30th. Get your tickets at southbankcentre.co.uk and see you soon. James Richardson there. Ah, I miss him. Great presenter. Transfers then, and let's start with some that have actually happened since last we spoke. Matthias de Ligt has upgraded the bicycles of Amsterdam for the mopeds of Turin, though he's probably not insured to use either form of wheeled transportation because he's a footballer. Juve building quite the team. De Ligt joining Benucci, Chiellini, Buffon et al at the back. 
not to mention Ronaldo, Ramsey, Rabio, and other players whose names don't begin with R. Carl, how is happy-go-lucky Maurizio Sarri going to cope with the pressure of keeping all those players onside and doing two things he's never done before, namely win the league and win the Champions League? That's a big question. It's a tough assignment for him, isn't it? Juventus undoubtedly are the favourites to retain a ninth Serie A title. I think Sarri will get Juventus playing better quality football than Allegri was playing last season. He is undoubtedly a very vital cog in Juventus's brand new project to to appeal to a younger, more more uh, football. I, I want to use football casual, but I want to use casual in a non-casual sense. You know, the type of football fan that would wear a kit to a night out. The entire rebranding of the badge and the and the strip, because apparently there was rumours that. They want to change the reason we don't have stripes this year is because stripes look like referees' kits in the United States. So they decided let's make a big black and white stripe by doing half and half. Uh, I think the lick is another factor in this. It's sort of let's move on the the, fa- the fabled BBC and get in vibrant young players like the lick and Ramsey and to a slightly lesser degree Rabiot. He should be fine. You get the impression that Sari is going to be better in his home island in Italy because he's going to be getting all the coffee he likes properly, getting the pasta he wants properly, and he's not going to be stressed out by uh, certain Chelsea TV football commentators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's probably not, bless him. He'll be able to smoke wherever he wants to, which is the main thing for Maurizio Sari. Where does De Ligt fit in in terms of whose place is he going to take, Michael? Well, they've been f- fairly flexible in recent years with, with the centre-backs. Uh, Buzz Ali's moved on. Bonucci came back and didn't have a great season. Chiellini is, you would think, is probably towards the end of his time at Juve, although with Italian defenders at Juventus, you can never entirely tell. But clearly the side's going to be built around him now. I I think probably him rather than Bonucci, because as I say, Bonucci had a difficult time. I think Sarri Juventus is absolutely fascinating because he's he's the absolute antithesis of everything that Juventus stand for. For the last 20, 25 years, Juventus have been purely results-based, not since Gigi Maifredi. As uh, as the boys covered on the Golazzo podcast, have Juventus appointed a manager who is so overtly wanting to play good football? And I think De Ligt for a defender is is you know plays into that. With him and Bonucci, that's a tremendous passing range. I think they they use the ball differently. Bonucci's excellent at long range passes, and De Ligt is is probably better at bringing the ball forward. So I think he's quite a, a vital cog there. And because he's so young, if it works out, he could be you know, the next Buffon in terms of staying there for 10 or 15 years and kind of defining the side. And Juventus have generally had quite a consistent base to their team. I mean, they've they've chopped and changed with the forwards, but you look at that back three and Buffon, obviously Buffon had a year away, but those players were there for a long time and uh, they do like consistency in defensive positions. Other transfers then, West Ham hoping to end their pretty rotten record of signing big name strikers and it not really working. And Marco Buga's looking at you. They've signed Sebastian Allaire, He's a Frenchman. For more on this producer, Ben, spoke with Raphael Honigstein. So, Raf, Sebastian Haller is in. For those of us who haven't seen him, tell us about what he's like on the pitch and, crucially, whether he's an upgrade on the likes of uh, Lucas Perez and Andy Carroll. Yes, I think he is better than Andy Carroll. Uh, better hair, for sure. Um, I like Sebastian Haller. I think he's um, shown enough at Frankfurt to suggest that he can solve a problem which has been dogging West Ham for quite a while to find that... Uh, number nine that scores you a lot of goals. Now, the one qualifier I would have is that the price seems to be quite high. Um, I think it's uh, reported up to 50 million euros, which is a lot of money for a guy who was signed for uh, 7 million only a couple of years ago, who has done better when he was surrounded by two more strikers. And that's when 
he really came into his own towards the first half of the season uh, just gone by when uh, flanked by Revic and Jovic, uh, he was the central striker and benefited from that presence around him. Um, when he played in a slightly more isolated role last season, um, uh, the season before, I should say, under Niko Kovac, he um, was a bit more uh, up and down. But uh, I think he's got all the hallmarks of someone who could do it if he gets the uh, service required. Dimitri Payet and uh, Marko Anatovic have been West Ham's marquee players over the past couple of seasons. Uh, they, of course, came with a bit of baggage, it's fair to say. Does Pellegrini have to worry about that sort of thing with Haller? No, there's been no indication whatsoever at Frankfurt that he's been problematic or unprofessional in any, uh, any shape or form. Uh, the opposite, um, everyone who's dealt with him professionally on and off the pitch has been saying just an easy guy to get along. He is, and uh, don't think there there should be any concerns in that sense. But I think the price tag maybe creates slightly undue pressure on him to do sort of stuff by himself, which I don't think he is necessarily the the player for. He is the guy that takes only one touch in the box, uh, gets into very good positions, but you're not gonna uh, necessarily see him, you know, take on the entire opposition defence and uh, score goals out of nothing. He needs, as I said before, good people around him and a bit more by way of numbers and approach play to really come into his own. That was Raphael Honigstein speaking with producer Ben from a departing Bundesliga player to an arriving one, Luckman to Leipzig. Alliteratively a pleasing transfer, Michael. You obviously had a loan spell there before. What is it about the Bundesliga that is so attractive to these young English players? Is it just because you're going to play every week in front of big crowds at a relatively high level? Yeah, I just think there's more of a, more of a culture in Germany of taking a chance on young players. And, and Lukman has, I think, has played it perfectly reasonably, went there, did reasonably well, came back, thought maybe this will give me a chance to to get to get an opportunity at Everton that didn't really come. I mean, he was in and out of the side. I think probably deserved more chances than he got. So he's gone back there. I, I think that's entirely the logical way to play things and hopefully it works out for him. And what is it about Leipzig in particular? Because obviously they had Luckman before, Oliver Burke as well. It seems to be quite a good breeding ground for young players. Yeah, didn't work out so well for Burke. But yeah, you're, you're right in terms of it does seem to be one of the places to go. I think there's a, a, a real emphasis there on educating young players. I mean, I remember when Oliver Burke went there and the coach at the time, I can't remember who it was, was it Hassan who Hassan yeah. yeah. One of the first things he said, which was kind of a damning indictment of Oliver Burke, but he said, we have to completely re-educate him. And I thought that was quite an interesting way of approaching it. There's such a, a different culture in Germany at the moment of basically good young coaches who've come through clubs and who have taken their coaching badges. And it seems like a little bit of um, a contrast from the way English football is going, which is, appoint someone who's got some connection to your club 15 or 20 years ago so I'm excited to see how Lukman does because I think he's a really good player and I'm kind of sad he's not getting more opportunities at Everton because I think he he quite he suited that system quite well. Carl here's something that's just popped into my head which might be utter nonsense but look you grew up in London as did Adam Ola Lukman as did Jaden Sancho I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying as did Callum Hudson-Odoi who's been tempted to go abroad is there something about kids from London who are more prepared to go outside of the country rather than say like you, you don't hear Phil Foden's being linked with Munch and Gladbach or anything like that so they all start playing from the age of five six seven on concrete pitches so dribbling 
one twos to quite play in the sort of pitches where there's no throw-ins because you just bounce off a wall and do whatnot, which I think is sort of a it's one knackering. Reason. It's knackering. <laughs> so constant pace, and I think that's sort of why Bundesliga teams are attracted to these players because they're right. We focused ten, fifteen years on making universal passing quasi ten players like Mario Götze, and we kind of forgot wingers. Where are all the wingers? Oh, England's making them by the boatload. Let's grab them in. From the culture perspective, all these players, when they talk about when they're playing in the cage football, they were playing against, they're all first, maybe second generation immigrant families. And they're all talking about playing other first or second generation immigrant families. Mr. Lookman grew up playing football, being sworn at in Turkish. So going to Germany and being sworn at there, it's no difference to him. You're still going to get nutmegged. Other transfers, Fabian Delft to Everton. Michael, you told producer Abby that this was reasonably interesting. <laughs> um, explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well in the context of transfers that had happened this week yeah I mean I quite like Delph he's he's had an interesting time at City where he was playing left back a lot of the time because they had shortages at left back and I found that really interesting from a tactical perspective because he was playing that kind of half and half role that Zinchenko has now kind of filled I think he's a decent enough player and uh, yeah he should do okay at Everton but uh, yeah that was a kind of charitable <laughs> reasonably explanation okay. reasonably it interesting makes a, it makes an alarming amount of sense it's a player in what should be his prime years who can add a lot to Everton's growing nucleus. It makes so much sense. It's like, oh, yeah, obviously. I thought he was an Everton player for years. <laughs> um, one that, I don't know, it might turn out making sense, but it's just really spun my head. Kieran Trippier to Atletico. 20 million big ones for the Barry Beckham. I just, I just can't get my head around this at all. Decent player. Not a great season last time round, but it, he's 28. 28-year-old English players don't go abroad and he's going to Atletico Madrid and English players don't go to Atletico Madrid. Is he a Diego Simeone-type defender? I don't think he is, but Diego Simeone and Mauricio Pochettino are not miles away from each other, tactically speaking. Michael's making a... He's nodding. Good. I've passed that tactical <laughs> test. Um, they're not miles away, so if Pochettino can go, yeah, he's fine, but every now and again he's prone to a brain fart I imagine Simeone will go okay you're going to be fine and the moment you drop a brain fart I'm going to say something to you and you will <laughs> learn to not do that uh, I don't expect him to be it's odd because Madrid, Atletico Madrid are clearly going through a massive rebuild they've more or less detonated their back four and they've rebuilt a new one all for more or less the price of one player for the price of a Hernandez going to Bayern Munich I don't think that back four is anywhere near as good as their previous back four and I think Madrid are sort of like, eh, fine. It, it's, I think it's a byproduct of what happens when you are in a league where if you're a team that is not constantly in the top two, or if you're not if you're not Barcelona, you're not Real Madrid, and you're an Atletico, or you're a Valencia, or you're um, to a, a Seville to a lesser extent, you can go, eh, well, you know, we can like wait two or three years and see if this works out. If it doesn't, we can just try again, because it's not like we're going to compete for a league title anytime soon. Is this the start of something that we're going to see more of? English players, you know, above the age of 19 moving abroad and, and Atletico looking at Premier League players, which, you know, unless they go to Chelsea and then come back again, doesn't seem to have been a thing in recent years. Yeah, I must say I'm really surprised by this transfer. Um, I think he was a decent mid-table level player, Trippier, and had some good moments at Tottenham. 
But I really expect him to move on to a kind of Everton or West Ham. And you look at the UEFA coefficient tables and Atletico are fourth, you know, the fourth best club in Europe based upon that. And you can only assume that they've put a lot of emphasis on, on his World Cup performances where he was very good, but in a completely different system where he was playing as a wing back and he could just get to the byline and cross the ball. He's clearly a very good crosser. I expect Simeone will like his set-piece expertise because Atletico, probably more than any other big club in Europe over the last few years, have put emphasis on that. But, I mean, he... I, I gather he was playing through injury this this uh, last campaign, so maybe we can cut him some slack. But I think really, you know, you go through the games and there were seven or eight big games where he was basically just targeted by the opposition who, who sensed that he was defensively weak, maybe not quick enough on the turn. And, you know, there's some nippy players in La Liga who I dare say will be doing the same. So we'll have to see how, how it works out. But I think we all wish wish him well. Whenever an English player goes abroad, it's nice to see them succeed. So, yeah, good luck to him. As yeah. my Spurs supporting friend noted in the group chat, he's not saying that Kieran Tripper is accident-prone, but in his going-away message on Instagram, he tagged the San Antonio Spurs of the NBA instead of Tottenham. So, <laughs> bless him. I well, hope it goes well. If that's the worst thing he does, then, uh, then he'll do all right. It got us thinking, though. We had a tweet from Greg Stevenson asking, with Trippier going to Atleti, who are the pod's favourite weird Englishman abroad examples. Um, I'll chuck in Jay Bothroyd, still a key player for Consadol Sapporo in J1 at the age of 37. That's just lovely after his little spell at Perugia 2. Um, <laughs> who have you got, Carl? Mickey Richards at Florentina. That was just a fun little spell of, oh, look at you. Yay, a defender <laughs> in Serie A. Is it, is, is it as hard as... It is as hard as everyone says it is. Thank you. <laughs> Michael? Yeah, the Micah Richards thing was funny because he went over there and he got a lot of praise like I've just given Kieran Trippier. And then I remember he did an interview with, um, I think with Daniel Taylor at The Guardian, two or three months in. And he said, oh yeah, I'm just... Should be starting Italian lessons soon. <laughs> it's like you've been, you've been there a couple of months, mate. My one's a bit random, but I went to uh, I went to Colombia last year and went to see a couple of games. And very randomly, there was a player playing for a team called Envigado in the outskirts of Medellin called George Saunders, who was from Islington, grew up in the Arsenal Academy, moved over to Spain with his parents when he was about 12 or 13, I think, played for the Villarreal youth team and is now kind of a a very feisty central midfielder who's played for a couple of clubs in the Colombian Premier Division. So he was a, that was a complete surprise to me to see an English player out there. He looked like he needed lots of sun cream to cope with the uh, <laughs> Colombian heat. All right, that's the winner, I think. Um, Honourable mention to Viv Solomon Otterbor, who's currently at CSKA Sofia in Bulgaria. And I'm looking forward to seeing John Joe Kenny at Schalke. Just because John Joe Kenny, you can only say that name in a Scouse accent. So how's it going to sound uh, in German? One Englishman who has been abroad and is now back home is Ravel Morrison. He's joined Sheffield United on a one-year deal. A brief history of the life and times of Mr Morrison. 26 years old, Ravel Ryan Morrison began his footballing life at a little-known club called Manchester United 10 years ago, where he won a trophy, specifically the 2011 FA Youth Cup, alongside Paul Pogba, Michael Keane and Tom Thorpe. That's right, Tom Thorpe. Since those heady days, where he made a grand total of three appearances, all as sub, all in the League Cup, he's been on quite the journey. He went to West Ham, for whom he scored a brilliant goal at White Hart Lane, but most of his hammer time was spent out on loan. He then went to Lazio, which also featured various loans elsewhere, including everyone's favourite global club, Atlas, who are actually based in Guadalajara, and he's played for Osterson too. Outside of the pitch, though, he's got a record Joey Barton would be proud of. Carl, he's 26 years old. He probably shouldn't have a drink, but if he did, he'd be doing it in the last chance saloon. It's got to click now for him if it's ever going to. He's kind of lucky to get a contract with a Premier League club, isn't he? Yes. Uh, so the Osterson's project, I think there was a very good interview with 
Morrison in the, I want to say the Times, just before he moved to Austin, he's basically saying, I'm going to Austin as, as part of like a longer term project to eventually return to English football. He said, perhaps not the Premier League, but I'm, I'm hoping to get to it like a top top half championship side. And I think Sheffield United know they are taking a risk, what with the length of a contract, so one year. Something that was particularly in- interesting in that interview was Morrison essentially described himself as having problems with food. Basically saying he doesn't, he can't really eat when he travels, he doesn't really eat any food that he doesn't really know. He eats more or less chicken or any Caribbean food. And that made away games, made any form of youth tournament you played in quite difficult. And he was sort of like, is this why you're not kicking on? Because once we take you out of your environment, you seem to struggle in terms of basic things like food. And also he was very much someone who enjoyed his friend group and taking outside that friend group, which Alex Ferguson believed that friend group was to his detriment and tried to put in with Rio Ferdinand and whatnot. And well, apparently Ravel Morrison was like, Rio, please stop patronizing me. I'm a grown man. I don't um, need to be murked. No, no, he does not need to be murked. And no one needs to be murked needs to be murked really he was good at West Ham and I think there is a good player there and there is a player who I hope comes good but according to to Osterland fans or, or fans of the Swedish league he wasn't particularly good there at, but then you know he could just come good in England but alright oh, it's going to be great mm. Kevin Nolan was on the radio this week he was at West Ham with him and he said he would literally not turn up to training for a full week which is kind of not really on, is it? The, the thing that I think is slightly odd about it, Michael, is that he's going to a club who, unless something spectacular happens, are going to be battling relegation for the majority of the season. And, and as a player, a creative midfielder, he's not the kind of person you would necessarily assume would be a natural fit for Sheffield United this upcoming season. No, and they also seem to have a good, strong dressing room vibe and you know, punching above their weight through Tim's spirit. So you kind of think that you maybe don't want to risk... Someone like that. I mean, I'll be honest, I haven't seen him play for four or five years since he was with West Ham, so I've no idea what level he's at. So I'd be inclined to give Sheffield United the benefit of the doubt. They would have scouted him a lot more than us. They would have found out details about his personal life a lot more than us. And it'd be nice to see him succeed. But yeah, we all have our doubts, I think. Yeah, we'll put that in the TBC category. This is going to make you sad, Carl. Charlbrook Dennison wants to know how much is Carl going to cry when Pogba leaves and gets replaced with Longstaff for 60 million and generally on, on United's business so far this season. Wan-Bissaka is a good signing. Everything else seems to be taking ages. I'm going to cry lots when Pogba leaves. I don't believe Pogba's going to leave this season. I think what we're going to see is he's going to have a Suarez, Hazard, Van Persie delete as applicable. All right, I'll give you one more season and then you have to do everything in your power to get me the deal I want to go away. I have no faith in Manchester United right now. I have no faith in anything they're doing in terms of transfer policy. We were told in late December that Manchester United were going to have an interim manager, then they were going to go out and get a long-term manager in conjunction with the director of football. Now that's happened. They got an interim manager. They completely dropped one after the PSG game, decided to give him the full-time job. There's been no serious mention of a director of football because apparently they made two or three approaches to people in that position and realised they don't want to pay that much money for a director of football. So now there's this quasi-role that Mike Friedan and Oligon and Solskjaer are doing in terms of director of footballship. I don't believe that this current transfer ethos of getting young, homegrown, homegrown with air quotations, players of, with knowledge of English football, I don't believe they're doing that for any other reason than it's just the opposite of what they were doing last time. 60 million on one percent. Like, yeah, that's good. He's better than what you currently have. You also got Diego Dallo. If you're, I'm Diego Dallo, like, what, what, why have you done that? Daniel James is a good interesting young attacker who primarily plays on the left-hand side. You've got Anthony Martial and Alexis Sanchez over there and you've also got Mason Greenwood coming through and you've got Jesse Lingard. 
is he for the future? Is he for now? Or is he just because you want to play? Look, we're buying players that aren't multi-millionaires. And what are you doing? The new home kit is quite nice. <laughs> um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer obviously got the phrase in, we are Manchester United slash this is Manchester United when asked the other day about their ambitions and, you know, should they just be looking for top four? I mean, even that's going to be difficult for them, the way it looks, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. They're probably starting as sixth favourites for that slot. I do think there's one Champions League place quite open, though. I mean, I'd be amazed if Liverpool and City weren't going for the title. I'd be surprised if Spurs didn't finish in the top four. But then Arsenal don't seem to be improving from last season. Chelsea, I think there's major question marks having lost their best player and a pretty untested manager. So it's probably three for one going into that place, unless a Leicester or Wolves can challenge. But I'm not sure Manchester United will have to be brilliant to finish in the top four, although I I still doubt that they will. Final thing transfer-wise, also on Manchester United, why are they trying to get Harry Maguire for £80 when Toby Alderweireld's got a £25 release clause? Does that, would that not be a much more sensible option? I can't give you an explanation for that one. I've I've been surprised by the kind of desperation from those two clubs, the two Manchester clubs to land Maguire, who I think is a decent enough centre-back. He's good on the ball. He brings it forward well. But that's absolutely huge money. I mean, for a, for a decent enough centre-back. So, yeah, I, I can't give you an explanation there, Matt. Sorry. Right, that's the transfer news done. Let's talk about actual action on the pitch next. So Friday night sees the big one go down in Egypt as Algeria faced Senegal in the final of the Africa Cup of Nations. Marco, you've been in Egypt and kept across the tournament. What's the respective path to the final been like for these two? Very different. I think they're completely different teams. And I must say after the second round, so I was out there for the second round and it was a really good round to be at because uh, the holders Cameroon went out, the hosts Egypt went out, the team I thought would win it, Morocco went out. So after that, you were kind of left with Algeria and Senegal who looked a long way better than everyone else. Algeria, I think, are the more impressive team. If you watch both of the you know, both of their progress for this tournament, Algeria play really good technical football, combination football. They take the game to the opposition. Senegal are the side that win tournaments. You know, I, I, I remember saying to someone when I was out there, I wouldn't be surprised if they win this tournament by winning the knockout games 1-0, 1-0, 1-0, 1-0. They've done the first three of those by keeping clean sheets and really relying quite a lot on individualist attacking. Sadio Mane, of course, is their main player. I don't think he's had a great tournament. I mean, he's missed two penalties, missed some chances, but he's also provided some crucial goals on a couple of occasions. The reason they've got to the final, really, is the centre-back partnership of Coyete and Koulibaly. Koulibaly, of course, is, I'd say, close to being the best centre-back in, in the world at the moment. He's suspended for the final, which is, I think, one of the most frustrating things in international football when you get banned for accumulation of yellow cards in a tournament. It just seems completely unnecessary to me. He got two in three games. It's not, it's not particularly scandalous, and he's therefore going to be missing the biggest game of his career, which I think is a great shame. I'm not sure it will be a great final. I think AFCON finals tend to be quite defensive and quite cautious. And when you look at the overall goals per game ratio of this tournament, it's 1.98, which is staggeringly low, really. A Premier League campaign is usually about 2.8. The last World Cup was 2.64. The goals per game ultras will be hoping for three goals, which takes us above the magic 2.0 mark, which is the main thing for this final. I just about fancy Algeria because of the Koulibaly absence. Carl, you were kind of nodding sagely in agreement with much of what Michael said there. Can you make a case for Senegal rather than Algeria? They know how to grind things out. AFCONs are a particularly unique tournament in that ones hosted in North African nations tend to be won by North African sides. So it, it, it is very hard for me to see something other than Algeria win. Is there a reason for that? 
It's one of those weird quirks, similar to European sides tend to win European World Cups, other than, you know, every now and again, Germany, well, Germany pops up and wins a non-European one, but it, that just tends to be one of the flows of whatnot. Obviously, playing in a country like Egypt is ever so slightly different from playing in a climb like one in the Ivory Coast, for example, but there's that. I very much enjoyed the footage of uh, Frinsby Park, Paris and Algeria after the last minute. Riyad Mahrez free kick against Nigeria. As a Ghanaian person, I celebrated as well. But yeah, I, th- I think this is this is an Al- Algerian victory. Also, something that's quite nice about this AFCON final is that both teams in the final are managed by uh, native managers. And, and both former Premier League players. You probably remember Aliou Cisse, formerly Birmingham. Yeah. Do you remember Jamal Belmadi? The name rings a bell. Was he Portsmouth as well? No, he was at Man City briefly. So if you go back to... I mean, I went back to 2002-2003 a game between Man City and Birmingham won by Robbie Fowler goal hoping to find some kind of confrontation sadly neither player was in the matchday squad (laughs) but it's been I think it's been quite an interesting tournament I mean for various reasons organisationally it got given to Egypt very late in January the 24 team thing I think has caused some problems because as we always see with 24 teams, you have third place teams going through. I think that also hasn't really worked very well with the climate there because it meant you had three games a day playing a game at 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. in Cairo is just, I mean, ridiculous. You know, having been at those games, it was just incredible. But there's been a couple of really good underdogs. I know that it's been spoken about before, but I was at um, the second round game involving Madagascar, which I think has been the, the story of the tournament. First time qualifier, a team who for the group stages had about 40 or 50 fans. And then for the knockout stages, the president of the country chartered a plane for about 500 fans to come over and, and be in the main stands. It was a really incredible game to be at. And I think in footballing terms as well, Madagascar, for the massive underdogs, you associate underdogs, especially the AFCON, with playing really deep and playing on the counter-attack. The passing tempo of um, of Madagascar was incredible. I mean, really, unlike anything else, aside from maybe Algeria or Morocco in the tournament, they were helped by playing their games in Alexandria, which is significantly cooler than Cairo. And I think generally they played their games in the evening as well, which helps. But they were just a fantastic story. And... Uh, even though the goals per game rate has been quite low, I think the technical quality has been higher than usual. And I think part of that has been the quality of the pitches. In previous tournaments, the managers always complaining the pitches just weren't good enough to play passing football on. That hasn't been an issue this time around. So, yeah, it's been it's been a relatively positive tournament, I think. And you were watching rather than working, presumably. Yeah, I was just I was there for a week there for there for pure enjoyment and and what was it like in terms of atmosphere in the ground attendances cost of a ticket was it all relatively smooth in that in that regard it varied massively so the Egypt game I went to they lost 1-0 in the second round to South Africa and I've never seen a pre-match atmosphere like it we had to be in our seats two and a half hours before kickoff just to get a seat and it was just extraordinary and I've also never heard a silence like it when South Africa scored their winner it was incredible the other games has varied massively so that's that's Cairo International Stadium which is about 70,000 I think day before I was there for Senegal against Uganda which Senegal won 1-0 with a Mane goal and there was probably about 2,000 people in a 70,000 stadium which doesn't look great so it's varied massively there's been there's been some problems with Certainly with ticket prices, also the kind of organisation and the ticketing system wasn't great. There's this fan ID system that basically means you can't sell your tickets on, which is to prevent touting. But when you have this issue with 2,000 people in a ground, you basically just want anyone who's got a ticket to give it to anyone who can go into games. So there was there were some problems there. But overall, I mean, it's been really interesting. I won't go into all the details because you could do a whole podcast on it, but the 
state of Egyptian football in recent years has been pretty disastrous because of the Port Said disaster. There was also a big stampede at 30th of June Stadium, which is in the outskirts of Cairo. So there's been huge problems with attendances at matches. A lot of people have boycotted the matches. And this was the opportunity for a lot of people who have stopped going to football to go to football. And the atmosphere at those Egypt games was pretty special. There's a bit of disconnect between the fans and the team for various reasons, both in terms of organisation and in terms of some some more short-term issues. It was a fascinating tournament to, to go to. And before I stop talking about this, could I just say I met up with a group of I describe as as like Egypt's premier football hipsters who were like massive Totally Football Show fans. So they know who they are. I had dinner with them while watching a game. So I said I'd give them a mention. One of them said to me, I'm definitely James Richardson's biggest fan in Egypt. That's <laughs> <laughs> some claim. Hello to you. Sorry it's me again this week, but he will be back soon. Don't uh, worry. One other quick point. I am very interested to see the knock-on effect of AFCON and Copa America onto the first 10 games of Premier League football. Sadio Mane is still playing football. Robert Freeman has only just finished. Mo Salah's finished in the start of July. That's Liverpool's entire front three was playing deep into July. Are they going to be knackered? Similar things for City and whatnot. Very conceivably, you could see someone like a Watford being in Champions League spaces up until the second international football break because everyone's just a bit tired. Elsewhere, before we wrap up Afghan, Clarence Seedorf and his assistant Patrick Cliver sacked by Cameroon after they failed to defend their crown. Uh, if only Newcastle had hung on a little bit longer. But I don't know why. I don't know why Seedorf keeps getting jobs. I've never understood Seedorf. <laughs> I never really understood him as a player. He was always a decent enough player. Never one of his his team's better players. I didn't understand why everyone thought he was such a good pundit when he was a pundit at the World Cup. He just kept on forgetting everyone's names, which I do myself, but I wouldn't expect to get praised for it. And now this is his fourth job. He's never done a good job. I mean, he's clearly a he's huge name. a very name. handsome man. A huge name, a seemingly a very nice chap, but he's, he's never suggested he has any managerial ability whatsoever. I found that a baffling appointment. This was the holders of AFCON, uh, of the Africa Cup of Nations. I thought it was a bizarre appointment. The, the modern-day Lothar Mateus. Uh, elsewhere, <laughs> Nigeria beat Tunisia 1-0 in the third, fourth-place playoff. Early goal from Odi Nagalo. Remember him? Well, there you go, listener. That AFCON section was a lot longer than you were thinking, wasn't it? Good stuff. Top scorer he is at the AFCON. He is. Still in Five China? Uh, yes. Yeah? Uh, good on him. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Let's end with some pre-season fun chat. You might call it any other business. Confident now, I'm confident. Good, good, good. Drive. Pass. Set. Up, back and through. Good. Diego, love it. Okay, chaps. Interesting game. This is such a good game for us. So, the Bournemouth boss... Mic'd up for a training session with the Cherries in La Manga. Tick La Manga off your pre-season talk checklist. Why do I like this so much? I mean, it's kind of like really basic. Well done, Diego. You run there. You run there. There's a bit where he says, it's a bit like a rondo, but a bit bigger. Um, but I just really enjoyed it. Is it because we just don't get this kind of access? I guess so. I, th- I mean, Howe's clearly a very well-spoken, intelligent man. And it's quite interesting to see how he speaks to his players. He's so cockney, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he, he kind of blends you know intelligent instructions with the way you have to speak to footballers which many of us cannot manage so uh yeah i quite enjoyed that carl is a nice geek out it is it's great i i'm a big fan of all or nothing the american and slash manchester city series so it's always fun seeing a coach just go you that one there grand well done more bum pats in football consensual nice bum pats in football please (laughs) i like that liverpool one that was on channel five for a bit and they had some of the pre-season training in america and brendan rogers had a big go at the squad and raheem sterling went steady 
and you had Brendan Rodgers going, Sterling, you say steady to me one more time, you'll be on the first plane home. <laughs> oh, I didn't say, I know what you said, you know what you said. First plane home. And look at the heights that Raheem Sterling's gone on to. Um, so we're in the midst of pre-season, as you can probably tell from that chat. I went to Champion Hill on Tuesday to see Dulwich Hamlet lose on penalties to Bromley in the Glyn Beverley Memorial Cup. Um, <laughs> it got me reminiscing on classic pre-season moments of your car. You've got a doozy involving Newcastle. Yes, I was there for Newcastle 1, Leighton Orient 6 on Newcastle's first return to the Championship where they were playing in their custard cream yellow kit. I'm just being utterly taken aback by how bad that Newcastle team was. Obviously, they won the Championship title at a relative canter. And that is seen as a key moment, actually, isn't it? Chris Hewton wasn't in charge, and they, and they had a big um, meeting at the end of that, like, lads, we've just conceded six to late in Orient. This is not cool. Yeah, yeah. They, and they turned, completely turned it around, had a really, really good championship season. It feels weird at Newcastle. What, you, say, you feel as if Newcastle aren't a great side, and then you see their championship seasons, and you see the goodwill and how bouncing the city is whenever they're in the championship. And you're like, well... Just stay there for a bit. You seem happier, maybe. No, I'll be quiet. <laughs> Michael, it, it, does yours involve uh, a fantastic Emirates Cup victory for Arsenal? No, actually, I'm going to stick with this season in South London football, if you don't mind. My team, Kingstonian, who I realise I mentioned far too much. Apologies. We needed a new manager this season, so we appointed a guy called Hayden Bird, who was doing a good job at a team called Merston, quite a small team in, in our league, who got to the playoff final last season. So it was a good appointment. And then we announced the pre-season signings. And he signed 11 players from his former team. <laughs> so we've signed a manager and his entire team, of which three used to play for Kingstonian because all these players just do the rounds. And it's just, you know, people think of, of non-league football as this kind of beautiful, gentlemanly, egalitarian antithesis of modern football. But you just get this remarkably small-time tin pot thing that is exactly what you want your football club to be doing. I don't quite know what to think of it. I think it's a bit embarrassing, but uh, I'm sure I'll forget about it within a few games. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Um, mine, I'm afraid, talking to teams that get mentioned too much on this show, it does involve the two-time European champions, Nottingham Forest. I was at the 1996 Umbro International Tournament at the City Ground. It was early August, beautiful day on the banks of the Trent. It was one of those where you got the price of admission covered two games. For some reason, Forest hosted it. The other teams were Chelsea, Man United and Ajax. Uh, and my favourite moment from so this is 1996 Ajax and Michael uh, having read your book I know that you won't be surprised at this I'm in the stand where some of the Ajax fans are Ajax's game finishes Louis van Gaal walks up into the stand to just watch the other game and see what's happening Ajax supporters have brought a band with them Louis van Gaal trips up a step and falls over in front of thousands of people the bloke on the trumpet in the Ajax band goes <laughs> do you think Louis van Gaal enjoyed that? no he did not enjoy that at all the rest of us really did I tell you, the storyline there I'm interested in having written and researched the book is was Brian Roy playing he no he, I think he would have left Forest by then oh okay because uh, him and Van Howe had a spectacular falling out they did yeah I read that somewhere in a, in a really good book but yeah it was that kind of good Ajax team I don't know why Forest were in it but it was a fun fun day anyway oh yeah probably so when was that 96 yeah wow okay yeah so and and you'd hosted Euros 
Yes. That summer as well, yeah. I hosted Croatia, Turkey and Croatia, Portugal. Yes, it was off the back of wow. Euro 96. Yeah. Nice one. Good times. I mean, we're 20 years later. We've never been anywhere near that again, but still, <laughs> can always hope. And that's it for another edition of the Totally Transfers are the only thing really going on at the moment. Let's be honest, football show. We'll be back on Monday with more rumours for us all to get really genuinely enthused over. I'm off to buy myself a Paddy Power sash in case of emergency. Until next time. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, email sales at muddykneesmedia.com and don't forget to check out our other football podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Supporting your team can be a beautiful thing, but then come the injuries, the goal droughts and the downright disastrous defeats. That's a little bit like life, really. And here at the Totally Football Show, we believe we should all support each other the way we support our team, through the good days and the bad. And that's why we're continuing to work with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide. On average, 12 men take their own life every day in the UK. So that's your starting 11 and your manager every single day. And part of the problem is that many of us still feel uncomfortable talking about mental health and suicide, and this can often stop men from opening up and getting support when they need it the most. So if you're worried that someone close to you is having a tough time, check in with them and let them know that Calm is there. Every day from 5pm till midnight, Calm provide a free, confidential and anonymous helpline and web chat for any man who needs support. Visit thecalmzone.net to find out more about Calm.